This is the Rational Perspective. I'm Eric Hogg. In this episode, Rowan Gormley, the man who is transforming the world's wine retailing business. When I arrived for our interview at his farm near Bungay in Suffolk, Rowan Gormley was in shorts and a pink golf shirt, busy watering plants in a small greenhouse. A few hours later, he'd be hosting 300 people in a marquee set between his homestead and the ruins of Mettingham Castle, which is also in his property. The castle was built by one Sir John de Norwich in 1342. But there's no airs and graces about the fellow who now lives on the property, as you'll hear from our conversation. That's Gormley's style, relaxed, informal, engaging. We sat out in his garden during the height of a fairly hot English summer, mercifully cooled by a breeze from the Atlantic a few miles away. In person, his style reminded me a bit of Richard Branson, which is not really surprising considering that for some years Gormley actually worked with the famous founder of Virgin. His story starts, though, in the South African industrial town called Boxburg, a place better known for producing pugilists like world heavyweight champion Gerrit Kutsier than professionals who go on to change the world. That's where I'm from. If you can make it in Boxburg, you can make it anywhere. Did you? But but you've been described in the British media as a surfer boy, came from East London. I grew up in East London, of course. Yeah, and uh, we moved there at the age of eight. So I really spent most of my... In, f- in fact, I probably only spent nine years in East London, which isn't a very long time because I've been here a lot longer, but I still really think of East London as my home. That's East London he's talking about, a coastal city in South Africa. And by here, he's referring to the UK, where he now lives. Gormley spent his formative years, though, at Selborne College, a famous male-only school in the place he still calls home. I feel like I was part of a generation that were very lucky to get a very good education at the expense of a lot of other people. And so I've kept the relationship with Selborne going and I've set up a bursary there for effectively black kids who wouldn't, who've got talent but wouldn't be able to afford to go. And my, you know, little, tiny little personal hypothesis on South Africa is that it badly needs a black middle class because uh, people who've, who've got houses and a future for their kids and um, you know, careers and that kind of thing have got something to lose and to value and, and that's what the future of the country depends on so my little contribution is sending one child per year to Selborne College Have you met these kids? No, I haven't and In fact, um, I did it a few years ago and I've never met that particular guy and I've literally just restarted it in the last year so uh, I'm going out next year, so hopefully I'll be able to see some mm. of them. It'll be fascinating. You must have loved your school there. You know, it's. I think it was very good for me. And I think it did a very good job of... East London's a tiny little backwater town. And the population of children was drawn from all kinds of backgrounds. But Selborne did a very good job of finding something in a lot of those kids that another school wouldn't have found. And that's what I respect it for, and I think it still does that. So. How did you end up 
in East London because it's because my dad was loved the beach oh. and uh, he worked in Johannesburg. We lived in Boxburg. If you've been to Boxburg, it's a shithole. And, uh, you know, really nothing to recommend it. So my father was always desperate to move to the coast. Their move from Boxburg wasn't the best timing. A year after the Gormleys arrived in East London, the 1973 oil crisis hit the world. And this town, built around the local Mercedes-Benz factory, went into deep recession. But the family stayed, and Rowan went off to the University of Cape Town, and after graduating, joined accounting firm Arthur Anderson. Soon afterwards, he was off to London and a new life in private equity. The draw was the salary was three times as high <laughs> as working in the accounting firm. But the, the real thing was you got an incredible amount of independence and autonomy. And uh, the guy I worked for, his name's Michael Stoddart, and, and he was just a you know buccaneer in those days. And he still used to do business over several glasses of claret at lunchtime and write the deal on the back of a napkin that... The contracts were two sides of A4. You know, the financial analysis was uh, done in his head. And uh, and he made an absolute fortune. He was a fantastic guy to work for because he learned so much. And at a very young age, I was given the authority to go and buy companies and change management teams and change strategies and then sell the companies, which was, you know, an incredible amount of authority for someone who frankly knew nothing <laughs> Uh, and I, I hesitate to think what a pain in the awesome. Shudder to think what a pain in the awesome must have been, because at 25, I think you you know everything, don't you? Of course. Um, but it was a, a, a brilliant training ground and great fun. And uh, what, I spent seven years there. Uh, Michael came out of a merchant banking background, and. Um, there was this kind of sleepy investment trust sitting there called Electra and he had the insight before the private equity industry got going and before venture capital really existed in the UK that you could make much better returns investing in unlisted companies and then floating them and waiting for them to float and the people who made the money were the people who were in for the sort of two or three years prior to flotation so he wanted to get stuck in at that early stage that was a great insight and he made an absolute fortune now, having one mentor, if you like, yeah. like that in a lifetime is, yeah. for many people, would, would be enough. But you then went from him to someone <laughs> even bigger. Yes, absolutely. That, so, Richard Branson, you're talking about. And, yeah, that was, he was fantastic. And, actually, it was while I was in private equity, we worked on a deal with Virgin. And the deal never actually happened. But a couple of days later, I got this phone call and... Uh, slightly sort of hesitant voice on the other side because Richard's phone voice is quite different to his personality he's very quietly spoken and uh, so he was like oh hello it's at Rowan's I said yes it is who's that and he said it's Richard's I said all oh, right Richard who and he said Branson I went oh fuck off who are you really <laughs> and and it was him and uh, so we had this very curious interview he said do you want to come and work here and I said well what do you want me to do I said I'm, I'm not really sure <laughs> And so I said to my wife that night, I think I've been offered a job. And she said, did you discuss money? I said, no. So she said, well, you clearly haven't been offered a job. You better phone him up. And so the next day I phoned him up and said, what about the money? And he said, what are you earning now? And obviously in private equity, it's stupendously well paid. So I told him, he said, oh, we can't afford that. I can pay you half that. So I said, all right, I'll take half that. But I want to be able to, within two years 
go and run one of the companies that we set up. And he said, fine. And literally within six weeks, that promise came true. So, Six weeks? What yeah. was it? Well, literally the day I arrived, we all uh, had lunch together with you know a bunch of these other very sort of impressive people who formed the, the Virgin Management Team, and everyone was talking. The, the discussion was, um, you know, what should we do with the Virgin brand? And everyone was talking about rocket ships and uh, nightclubs and boutique hotels and this kind of stuff. And I went, ah, financial services. <laughs> And everyone laughed except Richard. He said, why? And I said, and no one trusts banks. And everyone trusts Virgin. So, you know, just saying. <laughs> and so he said, okay, let's do financial services. And he's got this big book and he writes everything in the book. So he wrote it in the book. So afterwards I hung back and I said to him, so when you say do financial services, did you mean you want to report some research? What, what, what do you want? And he said, no, let's do financial services. Let's set up a financial services company. So I said, do you mean banking or insurance or investment? He said, I don't know. You suggested it. You go and do it. And that's how I got set up in the business. And where did you go from there? I mean, he said to you, go into financial services. Yeah. Where, where do you even start? Well, we had no money. So the first thing we needed was money. We also knew nothing about financial services. So we needed someone who knew all about financial services who had money and had a business model that needed a new angle. And through a friend of a friend, we got in touch with Norwich Union, which is why I'm in Suffolk now, just very near Norfolk. Just 10 weeks later, Virgin Money was born. It had 100 employees, regulatory approval, and a new tax-driven product. But things didn't get off to a great start. Not much money flowed in. And a day before the tax year ended, Gormley got the surprise of his life. A post office van arrived with 50 million pounds of deposits. Virgin Money was then off to the races. It was a lesson that was to serve him well in other startups. The ability to persevere as long as there's a coal still glowing, there's hope. Shareholders always panic much earlier because they expect you just chuck the match in and the whole thing goes up because that's what they read about what happens with you know Silicon Valley. Mm. People only read about these glorious success stories. So... Uh, so in general, you go through a cycle, which we call the valley of death, where everything looks terrible and cash is flowing out the door and your investors are panicking and your staff are looking around for new jobs because they think it's all going to end. And I'm blissfully happy because I can see enough coals glowing that I can feel, you know, all we have to do is just stick to the knitting, see this thing through, just keep blowing on them, just keep nurturing them keep adding a little bit of fuel to the fire and eventually the the whole thing will burst into flames and then everyone will look back and say well it was obvious and the same people who were telling you it's you know we're all doomed we need to close this down and <laughs> stop spending money will be uh, sitting there going oh yeah no, i always knew this so what did the lad from boxburg get to learn from these two great entrepreneurial mentors mike stoddard and richard branson well, they're very similar people. You see that what they've both got in common is neither of them did well academically. Richard never finished school. I don't know how Michael did, but not well. <laughs> and so they're both people who trust their instinct. And something Richard often said to me is, you know, the problem with these very highly educated people is, is they're taught to think like everybody else. They're taught to group think. And therefore they can never spot the opportunity to disrupt and uh, 
you know, whereas both Richard and Michael are very good at, at looking at uh, accepted wisdom and spotting the flaw and going, well, that's bonkers. People have just missed something here. And they're prepared to trust their gut. And very much, uh, you know, Richard especially probably is prepared to go, well, let's not spend a lot of time talking about it. Let's just try setting up a little business and see if the public like it. If they don't, we'll wind it up. If they do, we'll build a proper company. And that's the philosophy we've, we've kept going. In other words, entrepreneurs shouldn't be slavish about business plans or about the spreadsheets that they usually take a long time to develop. That's right. Well, I think one of the great dangers of Excel is it encourages people to extrapolate straight lines. <laughs> and it's very easy to build a plan that, that uh, with a few very unheroic assumptions starts looking you know, incredibly powerful. And so when it never turns out like that. You know, there's, there's always, we have a sort of rule of thumb inside the business that for every three ideas, we have two or dogs. And we're just as convinced about all three. There's no way of telling in advance which are the dogs. And you've just got to try them. And you've got to try them. We, we don't sort of put out a 10-year plan. What we're always doing is like an explorer working the way through a swamp. You know, you keep putting your foot down. If it sinks into the muck, you pull it out again and rotate 90 degrees and put your foot down there. And if it's solid, you take the next step. And... Um, in, in it. So when you hear Elon Musk saying we're going to Mars, we don't have a go to Mars plan. We just have a we're pretty sure what we're doing for the next year plan. In the mid-1990s, Gormley sold his stake in Virgin Money and got himself a chunky five million pounds. Well, for many people, that's enough to retire on, but not for him. So why, I asked him, wine? Uh, partly because I went to UCT, so I've always had a... An affection for the product. <laughs> the pig and whistle. Is that, exactly. is that where it was born? And, and also just, you know, uh, lots of kids uh, so in Reswith where their parents were farmers. So we spent a lot of time. So I've always had a soft spot for it. But the thing I, I thought about wine was the internet was just starting to happen. And, um, you know, so when was this? What year was this? This was 98, 99. And Amazon was just getting going. And, you, you know, you still fired up a modem and that kind of thing uh, and the thing that I found myself using Amazon to do was finding new bands and new music and new authors and new books in a very reliable way that if you like this you should try that and I thought this is what the internet does and I didn't really understand the internet any different to anyone else I didn't know if Amazon was going to succeed or not but the thing that was clear to me was the internet was a great way of finding out what was inside a book, what was inside an album, before you took it home. And I thought, well, what, what else is like that? And wine is the obvious product. And most people are forced to look at the label and go, all you do is look at the label and the price. You know, those are the only two bits of information you have to go on. So I thought, this is, wine is going to be one of the products that's going to win. <laughs> and because Amazon's an American company, and uh, the American wine market, very tied up with horribly anti-competitive legislation. Enter Gormley's innovatively named startup number two. Orgasmic wine. Orgasmic wine. What a cool name. <laughs> Why did you drop it? It's the, uh, because then Virgin came in and backed it. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, that worked very well. Uh, and the business kind of got going very quickly. 
And so we raised a pile of money and made every classic dot-com mistake. Spent too much on an advertising campaign, set up a fancy office in London, hired too many people. Uh, and, you know, it was a big chunk of hubris on my part that I thought I had two successful companies behind me. And I thought it was me. <laughs> and of course, it was a lot to do with many, many other things, uh, not least of all the team you have around you. And uh, anyway, they completely bombed and we burnt our way through 20 million pounds in a very short space of time. Uh, not unusual for the dot-com era. Huh? Not unusual, but again, there was a glowing coal. What were you doing right? What we were doing right was we were selling lots of different wines so we thought we should be like Amazon and have literally thousands of wines for sale and in amongst that were all the well-known brands which weren't selling but uh, what was selling was we kept finding these little producers who were just making amazing wine and we could get the wine very cost effectively because there was no other route to market for them and so you had these products that just completely outperformed the big brands and our assumption had been, well, you know, people won't try them because they, they want to buy wines they recognize. And the great thing at the wine business is that assumption is false. The minute something becomes a big brand, actually people's value in it, people's perceived value drops. And um, brands become commodities very quickly. And rarity has a value in the wine business. So we... we pretty quickly figured out that backing small winemakers was the way to go. When we first went out and started saying to people, look, we've got a new model. Where instead of you making all the wine, taking all the risks, and then hoping you can sell it, we're going to fund your wine. You don't need to spend money or time selling it. And in exchange, we want a significantly better price, but you guaranteed your wine is sold and you're guaranteed to make a profit. We're funding production. And so, you know, generally in, in Europe, people went, no, that's not how the business works. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, people were very much more, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let's do business that way. Then the message spread out into the old world. And then it changed from us having to try and convince people to work with us to people phoning us to say, can I be one of your winemakers? So this was the strategy. Then you, you were at 25 million pounds. Yep. Business looking good. Someone comes along and buys you out. So we sold the business uh, to a competitor. Um, Why? Um, well, uh, the, the uh, Virgin went through a phase of, uh, we only want to be in businesses that are worth half a billion or more. And so... Virgin Wines was earmarked for, and we were still struggling at this stage and losing money, even though it was clear it was going to make money, uh, it, Virgin Wines was earmarked for, we should get out of this business, it's not going to be a 500 million pound business. Um, and so the business was put up for sale, and then the guys who bought us, um, when we were signed me up for five years to stick around with business and about three years in they ran out of money I tried to buy the business back we had a bit of a fallout and in the end they fired me um, I th thinking that it was a way to avoid <laughs> paying out the rest of my shares but they hadn't read the contract properly and by firing me they triggered the, the whole deal so, so now you had capital with which to start a company. Now I had a bit of capital 
Um, I literally walked out the meeting where I got fired. They'd they'd uh, d excommunicated my phone. No, that's really. <laughs> I heard, I read that story and I couldn't believe it. Seriously? So I went and bought a new phone. phone Did you ask them about that afterwards? Uh, we've never spoken since. Yeah, yeah. You buy a new phone. Bought a new phone. I phoned someone to say, "Look, I'm going to set up a new wine business. Do you want to back us to do so?" And he said, "How much do you need?" And I said, three And he said, three what?" But I said, three million pounds." <laughs> and he went, "Okay, fine." <laughs> and uh, I phoned the office and said to one of the guys, "Look, tell these 17 people uh, not to agree to anything. We're going to set up a new company." Why 17? I just wrote the list of if I was going to set up a new company, these are the people I wanted. And that was it. And did they all join? They all joined. And uh, it was, it, 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 you know, because of the legal ramifications, we had to tread on eggshells to avoid um, getting into complications. What, what happened to the company that you left? Uh, it merged with another company, and, you know, 10 years on, it's about the same size, making about the same amount of money. Doing the same kind of things. Yeah, yeah mm. still there. Gormley and his 17 new colleagues got disrupting from the get-go. And by 2015, this internet-only focused naked wine was big enough to attract the attention of its industry's gorilla, Majestic Wine, which traded through 200 high street stores. So two things happened. One was our original investor um, ran out of money. And uh, it started by saying to us, look, we can't invest the last tranche. And then in fact, we need to get some money back, and then we need to get all our money back, and then eventually we've got to sell out completely. So uh, they landed up in an unfortunate situation for them. And at the same time, Majestic, which was who dominated the UK retail space, their sales, they had a model which had worked brilliantly for 20 years, and it ran out of steam. And the market was changing, and the management team's strength was sticking to the model and when the model no longer worked I think there were a bit of a loss as to well, where do you go from here so the chairman at the time was a guy called Phil Wrigley wanted to buy Naked for two reasons one is it just instantly gave, a, gave Majestic an online and an international angle and secondly he wanted a, a, a management team who were used to working in an agile environment because it was clear that we needed to try a bunch of different things to navigate our way out of uh, the train smash that is UK retail. Uh, so, yeah, that was in 2015, and um, uh, that's, the deal got done very quickly. And, uh, you know, since then, so at the time, Naked was a £70 million business. It's now a £160 million business three years later. So... Um, so Naked's promises come through. It, it, it was a £70 million business losing, I think, four or five. It now makes eight or nine. Um, and it, Majestic was going south, and we've got it growing again, even despite the fact that this is a very tough market with you know, the currency going against us and consumer confidence going against us. So, and they appointed you to run the place. That's yeah. unusual. We're, uh, yeah. Gorilla buys a, a chimpanzee and then says to <laughs> the person who's looking after the chimpanzee, please come and look after the gorilla too. Yeah. But it was clear the trajectory of the two companies. I think the big change in thinking that we brought along was the two aren't competing with one another. 
the same customers one day they walk into a store because they have a specific requirement you know their daughter's 18th birthday is coming up and they want to have a party and you know and uh, a week later they just need a case of white burgundy so just go online and buy it so i think the thing we brought was the same customers use all of these channels and it's not a multi-channel strategy it's a channel blind strategy. the channels irrelevant you've just got to have all of the options available that suit the customer after taking over as the chief executive of this enlarged group gorney put majestic onto a three-year plan the business is now two and a half years in and the fruits are beginning to be seen. Initially, though, investors were skeptical. The Majestic share price falling from around £4 at the time of the deal to £2.80 at its trough in November 2016. But since then, the progress has been steady and the share price is now above that April 2015 level. As for implementing the plan... From the beginning, don't decide what you want to do. Before you do anything, you have to ask the guys on the ground what they think. And normally there's a sort of 70% overlap with what you think. But always there are some things you didn't think of before, and you've got to reflect that back to them. And then you go, great, I've assembled all this, and now based on what everybody's told me, this is what I think we should do. And that moves it from one-third will do it to two-thirds will do it. And to get the last third to do it, you have to then go and report back to them how much better the the people who are following the new plan are doing. Uh, and then some of them go along. <laughs> and then eventually some of the others, you've just got to go, look, you know, if, if, if you are one of our top performers, you do whatever you like. But as long as you are underperforming, you've got to do it our way. And you've got to force them to do it. And then they do it. And then their numbers improve and then they buy it. <laughs> what do you like doing? What would you like to have 100% of your time invested Just in? Just focused on innovation. And, you know, whenever we are able to devote energy to is there a smarter way of doing something, the company is still, and I'm talking about both companies here, sufficiently immature that anything you choose to focus energy on, you land up getting dub- double-digit improvements from. And therefore, the shareholders will be happy anyway. So, um, you know, we are moving from a situation where we had a lot of communicating to do to one where I think we've got the right shareholders to bind the company for the right reasons. And we're now able to put the focus into the areas where we get the traction, which is, you know, finding better winemakers, uh, finding ways to grow the customer base, and finding better ways of interacting with those customers and, and and giving them value to build further loyalty. Before we finish off, your another one of these stories that uh, that sounds almost too good to be true was when the deal was done between Naked yeah. and and Majestic. There were seven million pounds of shares that you could have had and gave away to to your team. How so? Well, um, is that true? Is that what happened? Yeah. So when you say there was 7 million, it is a number that might be worth 7 million under certain circumstances. It wasn't, I didn't give away 7 million pounds in hard cash. It was the entitlement to a bunch of shares which are going to be worth whatever they're going to be worth. Um, The reason I did it was because, you know, completely selfishly, uh, I'm a 7% shareholder of the business. So I want everyone to be thinking about shareholder interests. And the best way to do that is make everybody into shareholders. 
And so it was your share options or share option allocation yes. that you spread, yes. in essence. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I had. It could one day be worth exactly. seventy million, maybe. If you, Who knows? If you, and you and the, the last question is America. Yeah. Um, when the news came out that it hadn't been an over, a rip roaring success, the share price in this case yeah. Uh, dipped. Yeah. What's going on there, and why do you need to go to America? Well, America is seven times the size of the UK. The wine market, our sector of the wine market, is seven times the size of the UK. Uh, the margins are growing, and the competitors are hamstrung by legislation, which is designed to stifle competition, which came as a big shock to me. I always thought America was the home of free markets and all the rest. It's not. Um, so it is. It is. There is more potential in America than the rest of the world put together. Um, so we we needed to go there. We did stub our toe, but that was two and a bit years ago. Since then, we changed the team. Uh, changed a couple of things about the model. You know, this year it is heading towards being a hundred million dollar business, making several million dollars. It made, I think, four or five million dollars profit last year. It's a hell of a business. <laughs> and you know, going back to the beginning, uh, there was a bit of bad news, but there were lots of glowing embers. It was absolutely obvious that business was going to make a pile of money. And so, when we uh, stubbed our toe, like I said, it was never a question of us pulling back or pulling out. It was just a case of being patient and sticking to the plan and it'll come and it has done so. That was Ryan Gorbley, Chief Executive and 7% owner of the £300 million market cap retailer Majestic Wines, which is disrupting its industry at home and abroad. In the process, opening up the production side to talent long excluded by a barrier of needing substantial capital to even get into the game. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.